All right, we're on, we're recording. We are uh, revamping or, you know, revisiting the podcast episodes that I did from several weeks ago. Special special guest, Tom Atencio, TA as I like to call him. Um, how are you doing today, Tom? Terrific. Um, sun's out, beautiful San Francisco, doing well. Um, happy to be out and about on the field after the long COVID uh, quarantine. Yeah, I know it's uh, been really, it's been a really stressful spring, just like having to be at home, but I think you and your teams definitely made the most of it, um, and I know that they're excited to be out there. I can see them excited to be out there. Let's just uh, hope it all continues to get better and people keep doing the right thing, so we actually get a chance to prove what we've, uh, prove how we've improved and prove what we've done over the spring was valuable and Know, it's going to lead to more success for your teams and the club in general. Um, so we'll today I think we we'll just go through like a little bit of your uh, playing and coaching history and some of your uh, some of the other stuff you've done, some of the administrative stuff, and talk a little bit about like what what your what your future's goals are and where we're at currently. And uh, so let's just let's just start at the beginning. So tell me like where you grew up, where, where'd you, where'd you play club in high school? Like what, what time did you grow up in? Just, just give me the, uh, give me the backstory on Tom Atencio as a youth. Yeah, actually, um, thank you for asking. Um, it's been a, quite a long time since I've had a conversation about this kind of stuff. Um, I feel I was very fortunate to grow up where I grew up, but to grow up how I grew up. And Fortunately, with the profession I've chosen, which is obviously soccer, it feels like yesterday. And um, I grew up in Claremont, California, which is not too far from where you're from in Huntington Beach. And Claremont's a college town, very liberal, um, and it's Ivy League level type of colleges. And fortunately, when I was growing up, academics and soccer were number one. And so um, I thought that's the way everywhere was until I... Uh, began to venture out and realize how special a place it was growing up. Um, I was fortunate at a young age to have very good coaching. I was fortunate to have great mentors that were good players and good people. Um, were, even though they were 10 years older than me, they would allow me to play in various games. Um, at elementary school, I attended a school called Oakmont Elementary in Claremont, and uh, we played two recesses and lunch every day. And the result of that was um, several good players that went on to play in college and some pros. And just out of this elementary school, um, in sixth grade, I actually switched to um, a Catholic private school um, called Our Lady of the Assumption in Claremont. Um, that was quite a change going from a very liberal, open-minded public school to, uh, <laughs> to a here's your books and get going, uh, Catholic school. And the transition was tough my sixth grade year, to be honest. And um, what's helped keep me stable is I never lost track of my friends and, um, from the public school or I grew up with, even though I changed schools. And um, I later went on to um, an all-boys Catholic school called Damien. And at that time, uh, at Damien High School, there was, uh, on the soccer front, uh, there was three or four high schools that were top high schools in Southern California. And one of them was Damien. The other one was South Torrance High School. Um, 
And another one at the time was West Torrance High School. The, the Bay Area in, in Los Angeles had a very good reputation. And we were the other school that had a very good reputation. So um, the coach who started me out in junior high school and eventually coached me in high school is the same guy. And so I was very technically based at a young age. I think the training was ahead of its time. And um, I was fortunate because I had a head start. And when I went to Damien, at that time, high school was um, equally or more important than club. And the club scene was just starting out. And I was from the Inland Empire, so to speak. And the top clubs were from there, San Diego, Huntington Beach, and Torrance. And so um, I was fortunate enough to um, be all CIF my junior and senior year in high school, which at that time means a lot more than it does today. Um, at that time, it means that you're one of the top players in California. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you're young, you don't necessarily, you kind of just look at it as the next, next step and you're a little bit cocky and confident and you say, yeah, I deserve it. You know, I play well or whatever. And um, I was also all league um, for three years. And, um, my club team was very good. Um, we had a combination of players from around the area and the Inland Empire. And we won state championships, went to nationals. We had a lot of um, players go on to play in college and um, a couple turned pro. And so I was fortunate at the timing. Uh, the unfortunate part is, is um, I was in between professional leagues. So you had something called the North American Soccer League which is um, probably the, still the top league. Um, I don't think MLS is quite to that level of some of the teams that were in that league yet. And then uh, yet MLS, I was in the in-between. So um, the organization of the professional leagues wasn't what it is today or what it was then. And so I was fortunate to play three years professionally, but um, had to make a decision. Um, after attending uh, Cal California State University Fullerton, I played there four years. And I had to make a decision whether graduate school, law school, soccer. Mm -hmm. And so I went on to play three years professionally and realized that um, there's really no future because at that time, uh, there was not many players going abroad to play. If I was in today's market, um, I probably would have tried to go abroad. Um, or I'd be playing in MLS and I'd have a, had a longer playing career. But I chose to um, help a friend um, after college um, up in uh, Boise, Idaho one summer. Um, he's from Claremont and he coached me actually um, when I was nine years old. And he goes, you want to come up and give me a hand with this, you know, directing a club? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll come up for the, a month or so. So I'll get the club going. And I actually um, was still in a player's mentality. So I actually came back and Chancho will probably remember the LA Salsa. And of course. yeah, so I came back and I played, I got on with them and plan, planned on staying um, and playing as long as I possibly could and not going back into club youth coaching. Um, so I um, actually was pretty much injury free my whole career. And then I got injured playing for the Salsa. And at that time, um, it was kind of a short-lived short type of career because um, they were just moving on to the next player, which is kind of what you do at the pro ranks. And so 
I had to make a decision. So, um, but going back to hindsight, um, I had a very good college career. Um, I played four years. I started all four years. Um, we were playoff bound, usually ranked. And you probably even saw us play once or twice, Chance. And um, I was, I got national honors um, my junior and senior year. And I was all regional and all conference um, for two years. And so um, as far as the college game at that time, it was very much like the high school game when I was playing is that it was the top level. So all the top players were playing high school or playing college at that time. And so it was a good level of play. And Southern California was the hotbed for players. And so a lot of the national team players were um, coming out of California, specifically Southern Cal. And I was kind of in that mix. It's kind of a network. It's kind of the same thing you and I do chance with player recommendations we're doing with San Francisco Elite Academy where we create a network. Uh, I was part of that network in Southern Cal. So if there was a pro team coming around or if there was a, um, any exhibition games or anything, I knew I'd probably get invited into play. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was, I was fortunate that way. And so um, it led me to uh, make it a decision. So I decided to um, go for a year up to Boise, Idaho, and help my buddy um, pursue this club he was building. And I ended up going to graduate school at Boise State where I was there, made sense. And um, I decided that, okay, um, I'm young, I'm 23 years old, and I'm gonna make a go of this for a while and give it a chance. So while doing that, um, I was one of the younger coaches probably in USSF history to get an A license at 24. And I was kind of pushed through because there wasn't many A license coaches at that time that could play. And so um, I was pushed through along with other, other you know, pretty well-known coaches you guys probably know. And um, we were put into national staffing positions at young ages, regional staffing positions. At that time, ODP was very important. It was the top level. And so I was a regional head coach. Um, and that means that I was actually coach Leonard Griffin, uh, Landon Donovan, and Michael Bradley, and Freddie Adu, and all these guys. But the cool part for me wasn't when they were older, it was when they were younger. So I got to see them come through. Mm -hmm. And that made it a lot of fun uh, for me. But um, anyways, that's kind of a nutshell version of um, kind of the intro. I did a, uh, I tried to time it. I think that was like five or six minutes you got through the whole history of your life there. Um, I, have some, I do have some follow-up questions. Okay, so did you go go to Boise, come back to play, and then go back again? Yeah, so I, I came back. Um, I got on immediately with the Salsa, which um, for those who don't know, it's American Professional Soccer League. So I played with the LA Heat. I played with the California Kickers. And it, was, it wasn't uncommon for me to be up in Northern Cal playing against teams like the Blackhawks or the Earthquakes. Yeah. And so, um, those, so were yeah. the, those were the pro games that I went to go watch in the 90s. Yeah, so I was on me playing. Yeah. And, you know, we had, we, I did a lot of exhibition stuff. I'll get to the Boise question in a second, but I did a lot of exhibition stuff. Um, I, it wasn't unusual for me to play in the Coliseum um, or the Rose Bowl and um, play against mm -hmm. Mexican professional teams. Um, 
played against the U.S. national team before the 90 World Cup. Actually beat him at West Torrance High School. Maybe Jim Millender was there. Um, and um, I was actually brought into a lot of those games as a hopeful to maybe possibly get onto the national team and the Olympic team and stuff like that. Uh, never wore the colors as a player, but wore them as a coach. Um, but back to your Boise question. Um, yeah, I went back to Boise and um, had a roommate who's been very successful named Kevin Boyd. And he was a college coach at Arizona State. Um, he was at Cal for 13 years. And now he's up at Washington State. And um, we met there. Um, and I helped get a, a club off the ground with a guy named Dave Goldstein, who is now passed. Um, but he was a very good mentor for me um, as far as being a young coach. And there's some things that fell into place which were fortunate while I was there. One is um, I was a young coach, but I was put on the hiring committee for the new state director. And um, Bob Gansler, um, the 1990 World Cup coach, um, was, was a candidate, and which was unusual um, for him to say, take a state director position after being in charge of education for U.S. soccer. But, you know, everybody has their different interests, and he had an interest in coming to Idaho for a year or two. So I pushed to get him there for a month, two months, a year, two years, as long as he wanted to come. Mm -hmm. This is a great person. So um, anyways, um, after being in Boise for a few years and helping what is now the Boise Thorns was a club called uh, Boise Capitals before that. Um, we won uh, some state championships. We put several kids into college. We did really well um, there. Um, I moved up to North Idaho for a couple of years. Why? Um, basically, I, I needed a laboratory and I needed to do my own thing. And I needed a, kind of a, a, an area where it was new to have a director and where I could just practice my theory. And so I went up there for a couple of years and um, it wasn't unusual for a guy like Bob Ganser to come stay with me and what better mentor to hang around with than him. Mm. So we would talk about, you know, playing Italy in the Olympic stadium and we would talk about, you know, qualifying for the world cup and what they went through. And so that was good for me to hear and learn. And uh, we did really well up in North Idaho uh, in regard to results as well as player placement. Um, we had uh, one Gatorade female player of the year and we had four boys that were Gatorade players of the year for Idaho. We had several regional players for ODP and we had a couple national pool kids and we had several players go on to play division one um, from a town that was about 6,000 and a county that was 18,000. Okay. So that's maximizing resource. So I'm putting this together in my head and I'm trying to like, uh, I'm, the wheels are spinning and I'm trying to remember what things were like back then, like as a, you know, I'm an 82, just like Leonard. So I was like early, early teens back then. And so I'm imagining that um, as like, as well as you did at Fullerton and like, as a pro in in that area where that was the hotbed, I remember every time I went to a U.S. soccer game and there was a roster of 23, it was 10 or 12 guys from Southern California. And I can imagine like how stacked or how set like coaching stuff was and how teams were. So you, so you go up to Boise, you still have that player mentality. 
you come back, you like got to get it out of your system, which I totally understand. Maybe get a pick up an injury and then you can go to a place like Boise where you have some contacts and it's a little bit more undeveloped. Right. And then you can, you can put together what you think would work and like bring that sort of Southern California style and maybe like what you've learned and see if you can uh, put something together and see if you can make a mark from there and had some success. And then, so where, so where do you, where do you go from there? Yeah, it's interesting you ask all that because yeah, you're absolutely correct. I brought the mentality with me and the biggest part of what I could do, especially going up to the Northwest was demonstrate and I could play. And um, so I could offer a different approach than what had been there before. Um, so um, I, by that time, after getting moving to Idaho, I decided that I wanted to make a career out of this and um, move forward. And so um, I entertained a position in Portland. I knew a, fr a friend of mine was on the board and of a club in Beaverton, which is right next to Nike there. And so I was looking for, um, I was looking for the next step. I needed a more professional environment. Um, I wanted to get a club on the national level. I wanted to produce international players and I wanted to do a lot of firsts. And what I mean by first is uh, moving kids into um, national teams, taking them from eight years old and developing a program all the way through that would be the club for life. And um, I saw when I went to Portland, what I saw was immense resources, but underutilized maximizing of those resources. And so um, the facilities we had were excellent. Um, the sponsorship was average when we started, but after providing a five-year plan um, to Nike, uh, they came on board and they helped. They were a big part of what we did. Um, also, I had on previous Zoom conferences with my teams, and I think you were on their chance. Um, two guys um, that were very instrumental. One is Corey Bell, physical therapist, and he brought in the orthopedic and fracture clinic as one of our sponsors, major sponsors. And then Brian Baxter um, brought in Amplify, which is his sports psychology um, practice. And um, we, we changed the way um, club soccer operated business. So what I mean by that is with the physical therapists and sports psychologists, we allowed them to build their practices out of the club. In exchange, we got resources that we needed to be professional. Nike, on the other hand, was strictly more contractual, but if you've been on the Nike campus in Beaverton, it's beautiful, so we had access. And they provided not only materials, but you know some financial help. And they also provided a, a platform for us to be a bit more professional. And what was being underutilized in Portland at the time was a different way of playing. Um, it was very, um, it was very structured um, when I first went there. It was very, in soccer terms, functional. That means positional, um, very static in my opinion. Um, we were more transitional and technical and good habits, so we were unpredictable at times on how we played. So um, going to Portland allowed that platform. I had a great board. Um, I had 
very, very dedicated coaches that were dedicated to the players and the program before themselves. And so with that combination of all everything mentioned, it took us about five years to really get it moving. And after being there 15 years, we came up with national championships. I think we won 13 regionals. Um, and through those years, I think in, in Oregon alone, won like 23 to 24 state championships um, as a coach or director. And then in Southern California and Idaho, you throw another, we won state championships. I don't know what, the number comes up over 30. And um, mm -hmm. so how do you, the question chances, and I've asked, been asked this, any, the last time I had one of these kind of interviews, <laughs> the question is, you're only so old, how do you have 31 championships, state championships that are, you know, 30 plus. Um, you're winning three to five in a day. And that's great. So my guess is your question later on is going to be, what are your goals for San Francisco Elite Academy? That's it. <laughs> that, that I like. So here's something funny. I was never – or let me say, let me re rephrase. I was very seldom ever in the state cup championship photo because I was moving to the next game. And so it was always my assistant or the goalkeeper coach or whoever was near that had our gear on. <laughs> I'd say, go get in the picture and give them the medals. <laughs> so I was very seldom ever in those pictures. So, so, so I'm thinking like, um, so you go to Portland and you see this like you see all these resources but maybe like a an opportunity to like change the mentality so a lot of times i think of club soccer um in that period as being like a, a primarily like youth focused enterprise and by that i mean considering 14 15 maybe your top level and being like scared to scared to think about the future you know like it's it's easy to go oh you know the numbers aren't in my favor about making the national team or being a professional or whatever so why bother with it why not be functional why not try to win every game at the at like the youngest age and just focus team by team as opposed to like changing the mentality overall getting connected with um, just like a sports psych person and an orthopedic person who's going to help you develop a long-term vision, right? And then I think like developing, and we talk about this all the time, but like developing players who have good habits out of transition, developing players who are like have a strong technical base and not so much focusing on trying to make the youth game look exactly like the adult game. Right. So like whenever I talk to parents and they're like, oh, you know, I'd love my you know, 10 year old team to play like Barcelona. I'm like, well, did you want your 10 year old basketball team to play like uh, one on one and dunk the basketball like NBA players? Like, where do you want them to go through the steps so they can uh, so they can be their best selves later on? So I can see like how that how that long term vision and that patience and just like the the big structural uh, changes that you're trying to make to a club can like impact the future of your club in such a big way later on. And I can, you know, I can totally imagine the day when we have, you know, four or five different levels of teams trying to compete for state championships or whatever it might be. 
um, on the same weekend, right? Like we got like 800,000 people packed in a seven mile by seven mile box. And then you got people from not too far outside the city that would love to come in and join. That's a huge player pool as opposed to, you know, places like Southern California where everybody's so spread out or, you know, places like uh, Boise or Portland where maybe it's a little bit more rural and difficult to get three, four hours, you know, players from three, four hours away. Right. Like I think that, um, I think that that vision and that like experience translates uh, really interestingly to like the sort of the project that we have going on here at uh, San Francisco Elite. So does that, uh, am I, am I on the right track? Am I following what we're? Yeah, you're, you're right on track and you have, um, you got to backtrack a little bit. You got to, the question of why you do things is, is number one. And so a common question for a director. Um, I mean, I was an executive director almost my whole career and the question's always, um, what's success? And you get that question a lot. How do you define success? And the other question you get is, what, what make, what's the makeup of a good coach? And so it, in regard to success, it's, 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 it's daily. Um, it doesn't matter if it's your top team, or it doesn't matter if it's a B team. Um, it's, it's relative appropriate goals, age specific and player specific. And so it kind of goes hand in hand of what is a good coach? Well, it's a good person first. And you philosophically have to at least have a pathway of success yourself to be able to teach a pathway to somebody else. And um, that's, that's important. And along with those two put together, you get something called the process. And when you have the process, the process is the daily uh, training games, off the field stuff, um, which is 99.9% .9 of the time. The state cup, the winning the league, the winning national team players and all that stuff are all byproducts that come after the process is done in a way that's enjoyable, um, fulfilling, developmental, and um, allows players, parents, and coaches to see a pretty clear path on how it works. That's the struggle in American soccer is, is seeing that clear pathway. Because there's a lot of pieces done, but to put the whole thing together and make it fit together from eight years old to 12 to 16 to 20 is, is a whole different thing. It's a whole different approach. So um, you're absolutely correct when you talk about population resources here in San Francisco, you got a world-class city. To me, Coming into San Francisco, like I've told you a number of times, Chance, I looked around in year one. I didn't say much. I looked. I went to other clubs training. I went to our training. I watched games everywhere. And just to see what the level was and the approach was. And after a year, I came back with, if we treat San Francisco like, like a Barcelona, where there's one or two top clubs in the city, and you have a city that's that's um, that's not too large where it's spread out like Los Angeles, but it's a little more compacted, but has resources. You, you can produce a world-class player and you can produce world-class teams at a, at a club level. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see the benefit of that now. Yeah. Yeah. I think my experience in uh, my first, like the first team that I worked with at Vikings 
was a lot of 99 and 2000 kids. And I know as that team came through from U10 through U18, they were losing like their top player, like one or two players kind of every year through no, I would say through no fault of like Vikings, they were working hard. Like I think Jeff was the DOC there and, you know, Libby's always done a great job there, but like it wasn't able to provide the top players with the amount of like daily uh, competition or daily, like, you know, that, that regiment that like, that fight that we're trying to produce here, right? So, you know, so you lose those one or two players every year and it kind of dilutes the pool and uh, being able to make it, be able to create an atmosphere and be able to create a talent pool where kids are really pushed by other kids that are very good every day. Like, I don't see any reason why, you know, we shouldn't be able to produce a world-class player from our, you know, from our 08s or our 09s or somewhere down there who's still four or five years left, right, before they get to that important level, um, especially yeah, with what we're doing. It's interesting you, um, you bring that up because um, um, I was part of something called Project 2010 with Bruce Arena, and we were, I was chosen to be a scout for U.S. soccer, and the goal was to win the World Cup by 2010, kind of unrealistic, but we all went with it. Um, so this is back in like 2001, but the program was okay, but the premise was good. So the premise was, let's take care of the top 5% of players because they were being overlooked because they were being grouped and herded into all being the same. Mm -hmm. And it, it's okay to take care of both ends. And so the top 5%, if, if there's a vision of what good looks like and what a level looks like and what a structure looks like and what um, world-class looks like or nationally good looks like or even top club looks like, it brings everybody along. It, it allows everybody to see that. It makes everybody rise to the occasion. Does it mean that, you know, the amount of times we're training and what we're doing in our club is for everybody? No, it's not. It's a, but if the avenue is there, if players um, want it, and you know, there's no need to. I, I didn't understand why players were leaving San Francisco so often, like you were saying. Um, it's like, well, we should be able to provide that here, and if we're if we do our job properly, we'll get other players coming to us. I think sometimes that this is sort of off topic, but sort of on topic. So I'll go with it. Uh, I think sometimes that like in club soccer, youth club soccer um, at the, at these middle age ranges, call it like 10 to 14, especially on the girl side, uh, a little bit on the boy side where people start to fall off and they drop out of soccer altogether, whatever. I think that there's like a big, there's a big, push from clubs to make sure that you're accommodating as many people as possible so that you can keep getting the bills paid. And it's easier to accommodate like the overall group. And that may mean catering to the lower level of the group and giving tons of players offers to come play, but it doesn't meet the needs of the top end of the group. So if you have a, you have to have like a much bigger goal in mind to cater to that top end of the group and be willing to lose players that are kind of at the bottom or sort of um, 
or maybe just don't have that mentality or maybe that's that's just not what they want that's not what their goal is they want to be they, they're not trying to become professional players they're not trying to play college they're just trying to enjoy playing soccer and I think like having in San Francisco like having a few different kinds of clubs where there's places for players to do that and then there's places for players to try and push themselves to the absolute top level I think it's fine right like I don't think that we should be looking at kids who don't want to go try playing the world cup as like like we shouldn't be looking at them disrespectfully but we also shouldn't disrespect the kids who do want to do that and we you know we try to give them a chance to reach reach their top level i agree and our first our first job as coaches besides educating players like i said earlier the the production of those top players or top teams is a byproduct process is much longer and our, our jobs as American coaches because the game's still so young in the United States is we, we have to create good fans we have to create players regardless of level of play or God-given talent that like the game and they they love the game they like they're going to find it and the beauty of soccer is you're going to find it anywhere in the world and so we need to produce good fans that support American soccer women and men Mm-hmm. And that should that should be the, the worst things the worst things that our players leave a club with. I don't care what club it is, but specifically ours. They, they know what fitness is and how to keep be a healthy human, and they're good fans. And if they get the rest of the stuff that comes with it, so be it, and, be, and that's great. But um, I want another goal as you as you talked about goals that I had in the Northwest when I was there, specifically in Portland was. There's this trend at 14 that you lose a lot of players nationally that you, you know, a lot of players quit playing soccer and we didn't have that. In fact, we were, we were strong 22, 23 on our top U19, 18 teams and we'd have two or three of them. And that's a, that's a credit to our coaching staff and the culture that we created that they enjoyed the game so much and it was realistic on the goals that were set for those individual teams that they wanted to continue to play. And that's a sign of success as much as the wins, losses, national teams and things like that. And so it's, it's all, it's all relative. If your team isn't winning at 14 years old and you think that that's not fun and you just uh, drop out or maybe you're not in the starting lineup every game or, your parents don't have a great understanding of how you develop as players and aren't able to be as good of fans. You just don't have that ingrained soccer culture in your life. Right. Then I think it's easy to drop out. And it's so interesting how players at that age are like so far from their fully formed selves. Like I love looking back at like how silly it was that like I was probably on a varsity team at Huntington high school, Huntington beach high school, while Sasha Kleschen's like on JV somewhere, you know, looking like a tiny scrub. And then, you know, I turned on the TV last night and he's, you know, he's still got his career going. He's still like all over the field for the galaxy. <laughs> like, you know, so like what we have to create these, uh, we have to create an atmosphere where like every player has the potential to, or has the ability, right, to stick with it and has like a group that they can continue to progress in so they can become their full selves that, and like not drop out at 14 years old. Yeah, the other part is um, 
you know, it, it's exactly what you're saying is the approach with, um, it goes back to the philosophy of why you do things. And so what a player is at 12 is going to be very different most of the time what they're going to be at 16. And there's a couple of key factors that separate you as a coach um, for the levels that you'll be able to coach at. One is ability to see potential and tendencies of a player at a young age and what they will do uh, post-puberty and how they're going to be three or four years down the line. And that's, that's an art. That's an art. The other part is creating a training environment that allows them to discover. And you mentioned transition. Well, that's, that's the key, is discovering how to transition both in the attack and defense. And so that allows players to flourish and allows you as a coach to observe and see um, the next steps. Because I'm sure you get it. I get it all the time weekly, and I'm sure most coaches get it. What do I need to do to improve is what you get from players. What do I need to do next? And my answer to a lot of players is you're doing it. Yep. And you don't need private training. Um, Self-motivated players are the ones who are, who are going um, to make it. They depend on themselves. Yep. And they have good people around them at very times when, at very important times when they need guidance. And that's at that 13 to 18 range is when you need to start to need guidance. And that's what we're doing. We're offering that guidance. So just my short time here in San Francisco with, with the players I've worked with, I can see that they're flourishing. They're, they're benefiting out of it. And um, they're, they're enjoying the game. Um, they, they love training. They love the game. And they're going to continue to play. And they're always going to be a good fan. Um, that's you know, that's, that's success. Mm -hmm. Totally. So in Portland, you're, you're having great success, um, doing really well. And then I know you've been part of like, uh, all these ODP and national and regional and state stuff. Um, but so tell me a little bit more about how you, like how you got into us club soccer's national board and like how, like the impact that you think that had on you maybe as a coach and as a director or maybe like the impact you had on uh, the organization, if you think it's notable. Yeah. You know, th these are great questions. This is stuff I've never talked about to be quite honest, not very much. <laughs> and um, yeah, let's start out with, we'll probably just, if you want to go chronologically, I'll start out with ODP. Um, the way, if you're not familiar with ODP, everybody, it's a limited development program. And um, I started out being on staff in Southern California when I was 22. So at that time, the state director of coaching was Steve Sampson, who went on to coach our national team at the 98 World Cup. And so um, he brought me in as a kind of like a good young coach and to give a chance to. So um, that's where I started. I was an assistant. Um, I did it. Um, and when I moved to the Northwest, ODP, actually, I mean, um, moving to the Northwest actually helped me because I was still a known quantity in the network in Southern California. And so um, I was quickly brought in on a, to a regional level um, at 23, 24. And this is a, a kind of a funny story. Um, 
I was the second assistant on the 1982 regional team for the boys, which is the Landon Donovan DeMarcus Beasley age group. Okay, so here's, check this out. So I, um, I'm learning from Derek Armstrong, who's the founder of the Nomads, San Diego Nomads. He's the head coach. And there was a guy named Les Armstrong from Arizona who's the assistant coach. Okay, so Derek gets called into the U20 national team to be the head coach. So he has to step away from the regional team. Les, um, I don't know what happened. He, he had to step away. Um, so guess who's head coach? At Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> we talking about timing. So I'm head coach of this incredibly talented regional team from, from the 14 Western states. And um, I'm still have a player mentality. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, these guys aren't as good as me. So I'll just, I'll just do it. And so I do it and I'm blessed with just talent. And I learned a quick lesson um, being there that I couldn't, I couldn't um, have them be so aggressive in training because, because they would injure each other because they're so competitive. Mm -hmm. So I immediately learned <laughs> to back things off at these regional events. In fact, we took that age group to Costa Rica and um, we um, were very successful um, in, in Costa Rica, but you could see internationally that the flavor was there for some of these players for the future. Um, so um, I continued to be a regional head coach for a few years and I actually run the regional camp for the boys a couple of years. Um, I was fortunate with a guy named Tim Schultz, who was the founder of Colorado Rush. And he, he was good enough to allow me to kind of spread my wings and, and, and do it my way. And so anyways, um, while I was in Portland, U.S. Club Soccer was just getting started. And I knew a few people on the board and um, there was a, a great guy who's actually lives here in Northern Cal named Gabe Root. And um, he would come up and just promote U.S. club soccer, promote the leagues. And I got to know him because we were kind of soccer purists. We got along really well. And after a year, he, gives, he calls me and goes, hey, um, why don't you try to get on the board, the national board? And I go, well, what's, you know, tell me what it entails, what's it about, what's the commitment, whatever. And he said, um, and I kind of asked, it, I also asked the question of why me? And he says, just go with your, you know, your kind of what you've done with your club and your kind of outward thinking on soccer in the West Coast and how to promote it. And I said, okay. So my counterpart is actually a great guy who's here in Northern California, it was Sean Blakeman. And he's down in, with Los Gatos now, but he was with Sac United for years, and he's on the NorCal board. So we were counterparts um, for nine years. And my impact with U.S. Club Soccer was one was um, the, the board at the time and things that were going on in the U.S. Club board was very positive. But um, a lot of it was Midwest, East Coast oriented. So Sean and I brought the Nationals and different ID2 programs out West. And so this was when this was when everybody who was really good had to go live in Florida, right? That was well, that was at '82. That was U.S. soccer, but yeah, that's when a lot of yeah, that was the living at Bradenton. Okay. Yeah, and so what we were doing was we asked questions like, "Why is ODP still pay to play? Why 
as you get better, why do you pay more money? And so the IDT program was created to get rid of that. It's a national selection process. So I didn't create that. That was in place before I got there, um, but I was in, pure, I was in, in support of it. Uh, but there's something called PDP, which is very good here in Northern California that we promoted nationally. But Northern California has by far the best PDP program in the country. And so uh, the progress was to try to get the Western United States represented by soccer population as opposed to state boundaries. So um, that makes more sense. So global or not globally, world, or nationwide, you can start to see that soccer populations are what U.S. club does, and now they're being copied by everybody. So um, that was important. I had some impact on that, but a lot of that was going on before I got on the board. I just helped kind of push it forward. Um, the other things, as far as the U.S. club board, was, um, you know, things like uh, insurance, how much it is, um, what's being covered, um, uh, club-based um, support as opposed to coach, coach-based. It was club-based. That means helping out managers, administrators, showing them how to raise money. Um, the players first you see now, that was something that Kevin Payne brought in when he became the CEO. And that was something I was a part of at the beginning. And um, the reason I'm not on the board anymore is because there's a bylaw that says that if you're from the same state association or from the same state, you can't be on the board. So when I moved back to California, um, I was up for election and I had to step down. So a great guy named Eddie Henderson from Washington took my place. And, um, and so, you know, would I ever run again? Yeah, maybe. Um, but Sean's still on the board, Eddie's still on the board, and they're doing a terrific job, so I have no complaints. It's interesting. Um, tell me a little bit more about, um, about ID2 and like your, your experiences with ID2 and sort of what they're doing. I feel like when I explain that or when I mention it offhand to kids, they don't really understand it. Like everybody understood what ODP was when I was growing up playing soccer in the nineties. That's interesting because I was on the board when we got our um, Olympic development program sanctioning for ID2. So that means you're sponsored by the Olympic amateur committee. And so ID2 is the national organization for U.S. club soccer for identifying players. So um, PDP is the local identification process. So in Northern Cal, you have PDP, which a lot of our players are involved with. I think there's 26, 27 from SF Elite. Mm -hmm. ID2, when you, when you get selected, we had a player selected last year from SFEA to go to ID2 in San Diego. It's bringing together all the players with the ECNL and the NPL, all the best players together, and putting them in a training environment where they're seen by national scouts. And so the biggest difference between ID2 and ODP is that is the cost. The only cost you have for ID2 is your transportation to the venue. Otherwise, everything is taken care of and is sponsored by Nike. And um, so that's, that's what ID2 is. Um, it's the identification process for um, U.S. club soccer. Do you think that it's good enough now that the big uh, the, the big organizations that are you know 
capable of monetarily sponsoring significant parts of it, like see the long-term value in it. Like they see like, okay, this is a program where we're going to get to see the next Christian Pulisic like early on. So there, there is a value in like put shelling out a ton of cash for this and develop and uh, you know, getting like putting a whole bunch of resources towards it because there's a potential payout. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a terrific um, question because just looking back, I've been on the national staff with boys and girls for ID2 and, and I've been on the ECNL national staff. Um, and I'm able to see kind of how it works as opposed to just seeing it in theory in a boardroom. And, um, I had a great position and I was fortunate to be the head of delegation um, when we took the boys under 14 um, ID2 national team to Spain. And the, the kid you mentioned was on the team, Christian Pulisic. And several other guys that have turned pro now um, were in that group. And um, it put him on a platform to get international experience outside the national team at a good level, which is what kids need. So we don't have the, the fortune uh, being able to, you know, travel by train three hours and play Portugal if you're from Spain. Um, you know, you can only play Mexico so many times and it's a little bit of a ways to get down to Costa Rica. So, um, so the ID2 program allows players to have that experience. And then when they go into, you know, whether it be like what Christian did where he went over to Dortmund, they have that international flavor already. They kind of know what to expect. And so there's a lot of education that goes on in those international trips that we take. Um, I was not coaching um, when we were in Spain. I was head of delegation. So what I got to do, I was basically scouting with the um, with U.S. soccer scout um, Car Carlos uh, Juan Carlos Machia, and he and I were just watching players and discussing who we thought could be in the next pool of national team U17s. And so that's that's what it does. Um, it just brings like-minded players together and lets them do their thing. Um, nationally and internationally got it so we talked about like um, all your experiences growing up kind of like how you got to where you were like a little bit of your a um, little bit of your pedigree so now here we are um, in San Francisco we've got San Francisco Elite Academy we're working really hard every day um, you can see in my background we're established 2014 so not not a very old club, but like we are, you know, we just started with the youngers a couple of years ago, you know, so we have more players coming through. So what as the, you know, as the director of, what is it, coach and player development right now, what are, you, what are your goals, um, what are your goals for like SF in the future and like for like just generally for to get like youth development like up to a like world-class level here in san francisco yeah it's a great question and, and, and a fun question to be honest um first of all i think um going back to why i came here um i i moved back to california and i looked at three clubs i looked at legends down south which you know and, and i looked at mustang and i looked at sf elite and um, i like the vision um, the Jim Millinder, Eddie Soto, and Joe Dugan had. Um, I liked what they were trying to do, and after I learned the city a little more, I, th I thought it made sense. Um, so my question to Joe um, specifically was, how can I help you get to what you want to do? And 
I think a lot of my impact has been skipping steps that I think normal clubs would take because I've already been through it. Um, helping move things along in a way, um, you know, you're familiar with vertical integration. This is a way to speed up the education process. So it doesn't take 15 years. It might take three or four years to get yourself on the map. And when I say vertical integration, everybody, what I mean by that is managers educating, educating managers, coaches educating coaches, players educating players, parents educating parents. And it's a much easier way to educate than one person dictating everything. And so we have more people talking about us and all the good things we're doing. And so um, we're on our way. Um, I talk to Jim at least once a week. I talk to Joe daily. I talk to you daily. And I talk to other coaches daily. And I want to be a part of the, of the success and help us move forward. So um, we're already on our way. Um, as mentioned earlier, we have 26 kids in PDP right now. We'll have more as we go. Um, we've been um, selected to be into the Girls Academy. And, you know, I think we're in a great position. Um, we've been training um, during this entire COVID period. And what I mean by that is we, during um, the quarantine, we actually did 53 Zoom conferences with, the specific teams I'm with, but I know all the staff on the whole club has been doing those, which is not normal. I don't think that's going on nationally. And the pod training we've been doing um, since being able to get outside has been excellent. And it's been good. And the players have come back fit and sharp. Um, so that's part of the process to get us to this world-class level or national level that we're talking about is invest in players, let them find their way, train in a way that maximizes them, age specifically, and, and then have an eye for what players are gonna be two to three years from now. And um, invite, have an inviting environment where coaches come in and can, can observe your sessions and can ask questions while you're in the middle of it and hear the way you talk to players um, and simplify things as opposed to going through the whole process of learning and developing the whole program when I think we can probably um, take some shortcuts that'll benefit us. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that that jives with my experience thus far. And I think it's like, I think there's some times that have definitely been really difficult um, for our club. Um, some moments where we got ourselves into games or into positions where like, maybe the players I think weren't quite ready for it, but because we like pushed them into that environment that they saw at least like what the level was. And I think it's inspired them to like work that much harder. And I can see the benefits personally from like what the O4s are doing, you know, and what those older kids are doing um, in my younger teams. Right. And like, I don't, I couldn't take credit for some of the stuff that, for example, that my own nines are doing in training because they didn't, cause I don't, I don't, I'm not playing with them. I didn't teach them to tackle like that. I didn't teach them to hit like that. I didn't teach them to take certain, uh, take certain touches away from pressure or like be willing to take people on. I think it's, I think it's stuff that they learn training with the kids a couple years older than them that are, <laughs> that are really trying to get, that are trying to be their top level, right? Like 
I remember one time we were doing, you know, one V ones and we've got like four different age groups of kids out there and, uh, Milana bless her heart, you know, with, uh, she's got a little bit of asthma and, uh, she wears glasses when she's not playing soccer, but hardworking kid, right. Just got absolutely blown up by a kid three years older than her. And then just like gets up and I could see in her face, like at a, at probably at a different club or in like a different level of training, she might've cried. She might've left. She might've wanted to call mom. She might want to sit out, but she just like gritted her teeth and was like, okay, I see, I see what I need to be. I see where I want to be in two, three years. And like, just dusted herself off and went at it again. And, you know, you can see those kids developing at like such a significantly higher pace then I watched other kids develop, you know, in this level. And it reminds me a lot more of my experiences growing up in Huntington where you know, it was a more of a suburb, right? So we got to play with kids older than us more, more regularly. There's a lot of older brothers and sisters, you know, and like, I think that environment that we're creating right now, like hopefully leads to that and same deal with the managers and hopefully I think um, the coaches more and more, right? Yeah, I think it's terrific. I mean, I, I enjoy watching the boys. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen the older boys play in a while. Part of it's COVID and part of it's just being busy. Um, but I've seen the younger boys play. I like, I like what the coaches are doing. Um, and, I, you know, I enjoy both the men's and women's game. Um, and, um, you know, it's fun to see the result of the, all the technical training and, and the tactical training. And, you know, um, just for the for the group here, we, we did several director meetings during the COVID quarantine. And, you know, it's different from putting, it's different putting theory on the field and seeing it because it, that's the key in the transition. It doesn't transition over or is it just staying on paper? And, um, I, you know, I, I'm starting to see a transition starting to happen with our coaches where they're understanding the theory and how to put it on the field and how to get a result out of it. And result not only meeting, you know, the scoreboard on a weekend, I'm, I'm talking results just daily. You know, what do you want out of the session? And how does that session fit into the next session? And how does that, how does this year fit into three years from now? And what do you want to see? So the question always chances, same thing we've talked about is you got to know what you want to see on the field before you can, you, before you can start training and doing things, you got to know what you want it to look like. And is it going to be different per team? Of course it is because you have different individuals. But overall, there's, some, you know, you want to have technical players or good players out of transition or creative players. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's going to go team to team, player to player on, on how it looks. Mm -hmm. But if that's your goals, you'll maximize that as a, as a resource. And, the, and that's the way you'll train your teams. Yeah. I would love to see in the future – you know, Nighthawks and SF City playing 25 game schedules throughout the year, right? And like playing on playing on Saturdays and us being able to go watch them at Kizar and us developing players that we know can go to college or play for a first team even like in the area where they grew up and maybe make a decent living and coach a little bit on the side, right? At like at a good level or even expanding the NWSL. And But until that happens, right? Like we still, you know, we're coaching for the we've coached we're coaching for like the competitions that we have right now right we're coaching for those yeah. and we're coaching to get players to where they can go right now so like you bring up a you bring up a, a the point about results so i always think of 
Bayern Munich versus uh, Borussia Dortmund and their media departments. Bayern always says they want to win the title every year. Like that's the absolute minimum. So they're looking past the title, past the, you know, the, the Bundesliga title. They're looking at the uh, Champions League, right? And coaches are getting fired for winning the league, but not doing well enough in the Champions League. Borussia Dortmund, a little bit behind them in terms of uh, economics and maybe like just uh, overall players right in their in their group and i think that sometimes they're afraid to say that they want to win the league championship and it's a big coup whenever one of their coaches says yeah our goal is to try and win the league this year so put your money where your mouth is tom what uh based on like what sfba has done thus far um we don't have to talk about we don't have to mention the boys side because you're not exactly coaching there but like what are your what are your goals for the uh for the girls side thus far and what's your, what's what's the basis for which you're setting those goals? If you if you claim for them yeah. to be achievable, yeah, that's that's a that's a great loaded question. And um, you know, right now, I just want to get back to team training. Um, <laughs> same, same. So uh, we're in the in the pod phase still, and um, hopefully this when we start to get into phase three and four coming out of this, we'll be able to train as a team. Um, goals um, for the girls side. Um, that's it. That's a great question. One would be to um, be more technical and creative than opposition than the top opposition here. Um, California is such a hotbed for soccer that if, if we're being technical and creative here, we'll probably do that nationally. So um, we have a measuring stick every weekend when we play games. So that's that's would be one of the goals. Uh, two is retention of player. Um, that's that's important. That's part of success is players wanting to come back and play. Um, uh, three is you know uh, top players recognizing what we're doing and coming in from other areas, and that's already happening. And um, they want our training environment. And, um, you know, signing partnerships like we did with Hawaii um, we, and bringing in, you know, national pool players um, like Sydney Yoshida and others. And because they, not, they want to be in that environment, but so do our players. They, they want to they compete like that. They've, they've been raised to compete like that. And um, as far as like the, the wins and losses, um, you know, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, being realistic about what you're doing and, you know, saying that whatever the highest prize is to go ahead and go after it. If, if you think it's realistic with your teams. And I think we have teams that it's, you know, some of the girls Academy nationals next July 21. I think it's realistic for us to get there. Um, and I think we're, we're on the right path right now, just for what I'm seeing through our pods um, at this time right now, I think it's more realistic to double our number of PDP players. I think we can have over 50 players that are good enough now. They've all worked hard enough and they're good enough to be in that pool. So um, I also think um, something that we haven't talked about is we have national pool players for various countries. So one thing we do um, on the girls side, and I think Bobby's done it on the boys side is I collect the nationalities um, if they have multiple passports. And so we have one player who's in, the remaining U-17 national team pool. One is in the Walsh U-16 national pool. We've had one that's um, into the, as mentioned earlier, U.S. national pool. 
Um, and then we're going to have a few that'll be being seen by Canada and Ireland coming up whenever we get past this COVID thing. So those are all realistic um, goals. Um, and, you know, I, if we can start to do things like um, have multiple champions um, in the league for Girls Academy here, that would be terrific. So. Yeah, that's a, uh, I think that's a, I hear a lot of player driven uh, answers there, which I think is, which I think is great. Right, like trying to get individual players to their top levels and to try and help these kids individually get to uh, where they want to go, as right. opposed to, as opposed to just saying, you know, I want I want my team to play whatever style we need to play to be able to grind out wins against whoever, so that we can say we want a title in something, which isn't necessarily like what success is um, in a player driven or a player's first club. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, the, the real question is, is, you know, what happens if you don't win that championship? And the club has got to be strong enough with its process that, you know, we'll just keep rolling. We keep rolling. And yeah, we're after, we're, you know, we're going to, we're going to, it's competitive, you know. If soccer wasn't competitive, take the goals away, you know, and stop scoring. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's competitive, you know. Five-year-old goes to the goal they want to score. And so, um Anyway, it, you know, any game we're in, you know, we're going to give it our best um, and see what we can do. Yeah, we want to play an attractive style um, and we want to be physically fit enough to, you know, the duration of overtime or PKs or whatever we have to go to. But um, it, it's, it's okay to win um, because it's a competitive game and it's okay to be good. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a player maximizing themselves. No. Nah. I think uh, it's interesting that you say that because I think back on the the 04s and 05s both being at that um, whatever it was their regional championships last last year and you know the 05s doing really well and the 04s coming very close and not quite making it to their goal right and then watching how the 04s have been training since then and just like seeing the fire in their eyes and like how how that minor disappointment rather than demotivating them, like absolutely has like pushed them even for even further, even harder um, to become better. Yeah, it's so. interesting. It's because you always know when your teams are starting to come around when they say they ask certain questions or make certain statements. And one of them that that 04 team has done is, you know, been very open to adding players that are going to help them. Mm -hmm. um, they're not, you know, in date, they're not scared of, you know, their position being taken or they want to work harder to keep it. And they know, realize that they might need one more ingredient to put them over the edge. And I, I know how motivated they are. Um, they've come back from the COVID quarantine, very sharp, every one of them. And, and I'll say that for a lot of the team, you know, the players I've seen out, um, but specifically them, um, you know, they've, they're motivated just, you know, to maximize. And, uh, you know, I think the girls Academy was necessary, you know, for the, for them in the O two or three age groups to be seen on those national showcases. So really true. Yeah. Um, so lastly, 
I think I think we've gone over a lot. We're like right around uh, right around an hour here. And I think that's generally the capacity for people's um, <laughs> attention span to get through the whole thing. And I know we could talk for hours because we talk for an hour about absolutely nothing on a Tuesday morning, <laughs> like regularly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what uh, what haven't you what haven't we talked about today that you want the people to know? Oh, wow. Um, like I said at the beginning, I haven't done one of these in a very long time. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's important that there's to understand that there's a lot of thought and process that goes into every session we do. And um, we're, we're on a, I'm very comfortable on a global level um, talking about theory or practice, um, because I've been fortunate. I think, you know, we've talked about it. Um, I've, I've been fortunate to run sessions in, in Europe. I've been fortunate to run sessions in Asia in, in, in North Africa. And I've also gone into non coaching type of licenses, but just gone into these places um, with, and hanging out with just their director to see what those top clubs are doing on a daily basis. And I've done that globally. And the reason I did it that way is because sometimes people are guarded when you go into a license situation. But when you go into a situation where it's just the daily one-on-one um, -on -one with the director and their staff, they're much more open to what, to what they're doing. So I've, I've been able to reinforce what I think by what top level coaches are doing with youth globally. And so I'm very comfortable with our approach and what we're doing. And I think um, that's probably what I wanna leave people with is, is we're, we're, that's where the thinking's coming from. That's where it's stemming from. Yeah, I hope, people, I hope people listen this far because I think it's so hard to be, a, I think it's really hard to be a youth soccer parent in this, especially in this year in particular, but like just in this environment to, to understand like what different clubs are doing and what their goals are and where they're like, what their processes are based in, you know? What, mm -hmm. And I think that uh, what we're doing feels really special to me. I'm like excited to be part of a project like this. And I still personally consider it a project, right? Yeah. Because we've been around for six, seven years now. Um, so I, I'm excited for the future and I hope things keep pushing forward and, I pray that people keep doing the right thing, socially distancing, wearing masks, and you know, hopefully we get a vaccine. If you know, if you're into that, I personally am. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, that, so that we can get back like playing games and just like you know, uh, take. I feel like I would maybe took it for granted a little bit, but I'm really excited, and the players right now are getting me excited based on what I see them doing. So. Yeah. I enjoy going out daily um, and watching the progress and, and, you know, putting little tweaks in training and to get them to react a certain way. Um, you know, I'm thoroughly enjoying my time here. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this has been fantastic, very informative for me um, and hopefully other people. So thanks a lot, Tom. You're, uh, I wish you the best of luck in the future. I'm sure I'll talk to you in like, 45 minutes or something like that. <laughs> and no, uh, Thanks a lot, Chance. And just, just for the group here, um, you know, um, 
I know the topic was kind of my career and what I've been doing, but Chance is a very good person and a very going to be a very an excellent coach. And um, being open-minded to theory um, is and keep learning. As soon as you stop thinking, and you stop learning, and um, that's that's something I think Chance is very good. And I think we have several other coaches in this club that are um, along those kind of along those um, methods of thinking. So, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, Tom. All right. Thanks, James. Been a pleasure.